You know, one of the amazing, another amazing thing to me is I'm sitting here and we're praying and we're lifting these things up and, and all that, and I can hear Stephanie downstairs reading scripture to our kids, and I just, I just love that. Like, I just love the fact that God has been so faithful to us to where we have kids to read to, we have a place to read to them, um, and I listen to that, and I listen to her tell story and how long Meredith and I have labored and praying that God would bring us someone that would love our kids, um, love our, the children that God has given us, and that has been an answer to prayer. So hearing that downstairs is actually not distraction, it actually is answer to so many prayers that we have, uh, we've had. So it's exciting, and, and the girl just absolutely loves the Lord, so we're really excited about that. If you haven't had a chance to met, meet Stephanie, please just introduce yourself, uh, walk right up, tell her who you are, and uh, we, we really, uh, we're really blessed to have her. So for the past seven weeks, and when we were over at Will Rogers, I've really been really teaching through, well, not quite last week, but the weeks before that, leading up to that, I've been teaching through our mission as a church. Um, you know, as we get ready to move into the new space, and we were fundraising, and we were doing all these things, and, and, and we were really looking at new buildings and what that meant for us, it was really important that we use that time as, as, a, as an opportunity to galvanize ourselves around our mission, because we're a community that's made up of all kinds of people. I mean all kinds of people. We've got people from all walks of life, all backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds. We are, we are a variety of people. We don't vote the same. We don't think the same. We listen to the same music. I mean, the same school, some like OU, some like tech, you know, I mean, all that. the tech. We just weren't ready to play. We're still celebrating last year. We were all still hungover. <laughs> we were busy. So we come from all different walks of life, right? But the idea is what we galvanize ourselves, what we, we, we build ourselves around is really our mission as a church, who we are. We were talking about it, and, and really we began to really unpack it together. And our mission as a church is, is really simple. It's, it's to love much and love well, right, as we take the gospel to the one and to the city into the world. And I began over the past seven weeks to really teach through every part of that. We talked about what it meant to really love, what, love much, that sort of abundant love that Christ showers on us that we're called to shower on the world, that extravagant love. We talked about loving well, which is loving with intentionality, loving when it's really difficult to love, loving people that are hard to love, that Christ with very intentional, an intentional way loved you and, and loved me in such a way that changed, changed our lives. And we are called to love people in that same way. We talked about the gospel, what that is that we take to the world, what we take to the one, what we take to the city. Then we unpack those key pieces, talking about the heartbeat of Christ for the individual, the heartbeat of Christ for the city, and the heartbeat of Christ for the world. And we really unpack that as a way of saying, this is who we are. Now, our mission or mission statement, if you will. I, I, it kind of sounds kind of corporate, but it, it, essentially that's kind of what it is. Our mission, you know, a lot of churches or organizations or things have these mission statements, and they're really declarations of who they are. Right? This, is, this is who we are. This is our mission. This is our statement. This is how the world knows us. And ours isn't really that. Ours is more of like a, it's kind of more like a directional call for ourselves, right? I mean, to say that we are a community that loves much and loves well as we take the gospel of the one, well, we're not really sure we do that really well, but it's who we want to be. It's a call to action. It is a push forward for us to begin to live this way. And it's a sending statement. It's not a sitting statement. It's not a statement that describes an organization that sits still. It's actually a statement that sends us. And I say this all the time, but the followers of Christ, as followers of Christ, we exist to be sent into the world. All right? Our mission should be a sending mission. It should be one that pushes us outside of these doors. Our new goal is not that we have a building to put some signs up on the street and hope we fill these places, fill these seats. Our goal is that this becomes a launching place for us to take the gospel into the world and live as Christ lived. Because Jesus, his picture was one that went, 
Remember, Jesus didn't sit around and, and wait for people to come to him and then be like, oh, you've got this, you've got that. He met people on the roads. He met with them in the middle of their lives. He loved children. He met people in the middle of their struggle. He, he freed people from their hurts, and he met them in the middle of their lives. And the gospel is really that. It is, it is the church being sent into the world to love people the way that Christ loved people. And in our mission, we exist to be sent. This place is just a building that becomes a launching place for us to engage our mission. If we become comfortable here, we failed. Some point in time, this becomes a place that we go into the world, right? That we go into the world to love the one and to the city and to the, to the world in a way that says, then God, we are all yours. And being a sent church, really, and being a gospel-driven church, it, it leads in the, us into the middle of the unknown. I mean, we have no idea what life looks like, right? I don't know. I mean, if I can make it literally to noon, we're going to be really good today because it's been a long few days. But I got an email two days ago from a lady that said, my son wants to have a wedding rehearsal at your building. And in the end line of that was, will you be around in June, right? And I thought, <laughs> it's a legitimate question. Like, that is... That is a safe question to ask. I wrote her back. I was like, I don't know, actually. Going to be a safer bet to bank on somebody else. You know, I mean, she, you know, she's basically going, look, I don't want to go to all this trouble and then, you know, kind of have him do his writing. He didn't want to have a wedding here, just a rehearsal. We're like a practice facility, like a practice church. <laughs> then we're going to go to a real church down the street, but we know you're good enough for our practice. So she was like, and I was, I really, the email was really sweet, but it, she, I know what she was trying to say. We get, she's like, we get you, but I mean, really, if I get to June and you close, I'm going to be really upset, right? We could have booked somebody else. So I, I sort of back up, I said, probably, I don't know, probably not. I mean, you know, probably a better bet just to do whatever. But I laughed because I thought, you know, we live in the unknown. I don't know if we can afford this place. I don't know what our buying kids ministry is going to look like. I have no idea because if you'd have told me last Thanksgiving that this is where we'd be, I would have called you crazy because life imploded on us in a really great way. Life imploded on us and we didn't know what we were doing. We were thrust as a church to follow the call of Christ. We didn't know where that leads. And that is the picture of the gospel. The gospel is not our clear little picture. It is messy and it is dirty and it is hard and it turns our worlds upside down. And our little picture of church and life, when you put the gospel in the middle of that, it explodes it. Because the way that God calls us to love and live is so much different than the way our agenda is set up. And so when we begin to be a church that says, God, I will hear your call, we will follow you, we can throw our plans out the window. Every church planning book you've ever read is, is, is creates room or formulas that have to have room for the Lord to do what the Lord wants to do. So we haven't followed a whole lot of manuals. We basically just said, God, you are directing us, and we want to trust you, and you are leading us that way. And we want to be a place that says, God, we will go where you call us to go. What we're going to look at this morning in our text is really a picture of that, a picture of a life that has, well, a call from the Lord with a whole lot of uncertainty tied to it. You know, last night, not that this has a whole lot to do with anything, but it was kind of funny. Last night, we went out, or Friday, we went out with um, a couple other couples to a, a deal downtown, and we got a babysitter. My daughter had a sleepover and had a babysitter for the seven-year-old, right? Seven-year-old babysitter. And we were giving him the rules, you know, hey, listen, Cooper, here's the deal. Can't have all your friends over. I got a lot of friends in the neighborhood. Can't have all your friends over. We got a babysitter coming and, and all that. And he said, here's what he said. Look up at his mom. He goes, well, mom, I may have accidentally told Quaid, who's the kid living there, accidentally told Quaid that my babysitter was Kevin Durant. <laughs> so if you're thinking people aren't going to come by, you know, kind of like, I started thinking, I go, I would love to be part of that conversation. So he's sitting around at lunch, you know, he's unpacking his little deal. He's like, yeah, I got a babysitter coming tonight. It's KD. He's a swing by. It's kind of how we roll at the Prater house, you know, uh, going to be. So when the Quaid comes running down to see, he's going to see 
14-year-old 5'1 Braden, white guy right there, going, dude, your Kevin Durant is lame, man. But, you know, life is full of those kind of unexpected sort of little things. And, and, and I was, it made me think about that because as I was driving, when we lived in Austin a few years ago, I was driving down, I was finishing my degree, and I was getting, you know, my master's degree, and I was finishing seminary, I was driving to school, and I had my life all orderly planned out because I was working full-time, we had new babies, and I was going to school full-time, and life was crazy, and my life all planned out, and I had to hit certain things at certain times and traffic at certain points in order to make all this work. And I was driving to class, and, and in Austin, there's a brig bridge that goes over the lake. You've ever been down there? And I was, had to go down there uh, to go to class. I was crossing over the lake, and I was doing about 65 miles an hour, lots of traffic in Austin. People were everywhere. And in a, in a matter of seconds, everything was fine. And then I found myself in this huge white cloud, like boom. And it was like almost like an explosion went off. And, and a white cloud, like literally towered straight up to the sky. I mean, and everything went totally white. I couldn't see my hood. I couldn't see out the windows. I couldn't see anything. And I had one of those moments of just absolute hysteria where I know I'm going 65 miles an hour, and I know if I slam on the brakes, someone behind me is going to slam right in the back of me. But I also know that if I keep going, I'm going to slam into the side or into the back of somebody else. I also know that if I I pull off to the right, I'm going to pull off into the lake, and that's not going to be good. And I know that if I pull over left, there are people on this side. And I had that moment of just going... Absolute chaos. And I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments in a car or wherever where all of a sudden everything was fine and went to chaos in a moment and there was nothing you could do. Helpless. And I'm a control person. Like, I like to have my life ordered and controlled and these are the things and these are the timelines, the way it works. And, and everything went crazy, just white. And what felt like minutes but was really more like 30 seconds, I, I gripped that steering wheel and I just, I felt like, Lord, this, is, this might be it. I mean, this is, this is how it's going to end. I mean, it's been a good ride. Thanks for everything. I appreciate it. High five you on the way out, but we are done. I really felt like that was going to be it. And, and I came through that and, and, and as fast as it happened, man, I came out the other side and it was crystal clear. Everything was just normal. Cars were a little bit pulled over here and there. Everyone's kind of freaking out, but I was still going 60 miles an hour here on this road. And I look in my rearview mirror, and there's an 18-wheeler kind of pulled off the side of the road. And there's these giant bags of, like, concrete or lye or whatever laying in the road. And they had fallen off this truck and just created this massive cloud. I drove over to school, seminary, and I got out, and I was listening to a professor talk about just a ridiculous stuff that no one needs to know. And I thought about... I thought about how simple the gospel was, about how God desires my life totally surrendered and how little I can control. Because we live in, in lives that want to control everything. We want to say, God, I don't have this orderly. I don't want to drive. I'm going to do it this time. Blah, blah, blah. But the reality is that when we say, God, I give you my life, I surrender my life to you, I give you everything, all of it, and I lay down control. What we're going to look at this morning in our text in, Mac, in Acts chapter 28 is a picture of a call in the life of Paul that nobody really pays much attention to. We always pay attention to Paul's big things, right? Road to Damascus, all these kind of churches he planted, his letters to the Philippians and the Galatians and all that. But this little call out of the book of Acts that I think goes mostly unnoticed is a world changer to me because it's a call in the life of Paul where Paul has to look at, at the Lord and say, God, I trust you and I surrender my life to the unknown. So if you've got a Bible, I want you to go ahead and turn there, Acts chapter 28. If you don't, uh, we put some in the chairs around you. Um, Here's our deal, is that every single week, I'm going to preach from this thing. So you might as well bring it if you have one. No one's going to be like, oh my gosh, I got the Bible, but you're going to church anyway. So I'm going to have mine, you need to have yours. If you don't have one, keep mine. Take this one with you, brag about it, show it to your friends. It's high dollar, it's got a paper cover, it's got a tree on it. This is really nice. These are really nice. Get yourself something really nice there, Clark. Um, so 
Take that with you. We want you to use it. I want you to be in here because I want you to know I'm not making this stuff up either. I mean, this stuff is coming straight from God's word, so I'm not creating this out of thin air. Book of Acts, chapter 28. We're going to pray, and then uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of background, and then we're going to dive into the word together. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. Uh, I celebrate, God, I celebrate uh, your faithfulness this morning. And I celebrate your faithfulness with this group of people, Father, that is, have been so uh, amazing to this church. And, and with the folks that are here for the first time, God, we just celebrate that you've given us together a place to worship this morning. And we recognize that there are people all over this world, Father, that don't have this place to worship. We know that we have friends in China that are huddled in back rooms of apartments, God. I know that we have friends in Peru, Father, living on the outskirts of town that don't have roofs on their head that are worshiping uh, on the edges of beaches. God, I know these things. And so, Lord, I'm so grateful that we are gathered in this place together. Lord, and we remember uh, the believers that are gathered around the world. Lord, as you teach us this morning from your word, I pray that we would pay attention and I pray that we would listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit and that you would turn our lives upside down a little bit as we come face to face with your word this morning. Take a moment just in your own heart and, and just pray that God would move in you. Just, just pray that in your own heart. Whisper that God would teach you through his word. Uh, whisper that to the Lord this morning in your heart. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you, around you, in front of you, behind you. Even if you don't know them, just pray for them. Even if you don't like to pray, just, you know, just whisper that. Just go, God, move in this person's life. As I say every single week, be in the habit of praying for other people. Pray that God would move in them. Pray for that person next to you. God, we thank you for what you're doing in this place. Um, Lord, we don't invite you here. We know you're already here. Uh, God, we know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you, that your word is, is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, that it penetrates our hearts. And so, God, we pray that you would teach us through your word, that we would encounter you through your truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've got to give you some background. I always tell you that we have to read Scripture in context. We can't just kind of pick out what we like. And so there's a lot of context that I've got to give you that's going to set up this last chapter in the book of Acts because it's really important. Really, the, uh, the last kind of five-ish chapters, about 22 through 28, uh, six or whatever the math is there. Um, those last chapters are really sort of the picture of how the church just kind of goes on. Acts 1 and 2, the church is born. Acts 22 through 28, the church is, is really kind of just goes on. I mean, it doesn't come to a pretty little close, and, and then the church is over. I mean, it is the birth of the church, and then we watch the church, and God use the church, and the Holy Spirit kind of lead the church, and then Paul gets this call, and the church just kind of continues. And Paul's going to receive a call that we're going to look at that I think is really important for us to pay attention to. But let me tell you what's going on before we get there. In chapter 22, Paul arrives in Jerusalem. Now, Paul's been on a bunch of missionary journeys. He's been all over the world, or the known world, teaching about, uh, about Jesus. And he's traveled in these different missionary journeys. He's gone all the way up to places like Philippi and Thessalonica and Galatia and the Corinthians, all those places up there. He has gone around, and he's been on all these missionary journeys, and he comes back to Jerusalem. And when he comes back to Jerusalem, he is met with some incredible hostility, right, from two different groups of people. There's one group of people that wants to kill him for one reason, and another group of people that wants to kill him for a totally different. The first group are these Jewish Christians, and they're Christians living in Jerusalem that are so angry at Paul because they've heard that Paul's been teaching Gentiles, which are non-Christians, that they can follow Jesus Christ and not have to keep the law. All right? And that made the Jewish Christians furious because the ones in Jerusalem wanted to be able to be a follower of Christ. You still had to keep the Mosaic law. And Paul was telling the Gentiles they didn't have to do that, that all they needed was Jesus. And this infuriated these Jewish Christians. And when he showed back up, man, they wanted, they wanted to kill him. 
Well, the second group of people that wanted to kill him were all the Jewish people that were non-Christians, a group of those leaders, because they hated Christians. They hated Jesus. They hated Paul. They hated everything that he stood for, and they wanted to kill him. And both of these groups of people, the Jewish non-Christians and the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, were furious at Paul. When he showed up in town, stepped foot in the temple to go and teach, which is what he did every time he showed up somewhere, he'd go to the temple and begin to teach. He showed up, and both crowds were so angry that they seized him And they begin to drag him outside of town, beating him and kicking him, and they were going to kill him. And chapter 22 talks about they literally drug Paul's body outside of town and were going to kill him. They were that angry. Well, the Romans, who were occupying the land at the time, right, the big Roman empire, massive empire, well, they didn't sort of just stand by idly and let people just be killed. They kind of, uh, they had laws and rules and things like that. And so they seized Paul and arrested him, right, because this is Paul's fault, right? He's caused an uproar. So they arrest Paul, and they, they take him into custody, and they say, look, you have caused this crazy uproar. You're under arrest, right? And so they're talking about what to do and, and what to do with Paul. And Paul looks at him and he says, hey, before you take me off to jail, let me just talk to these people. All right? Let me. And they say, okay. So Paul gets on this little box or bench or whatever. And he stands up and he tells the crowd his conversion story, his salvation story, that Damascus Road story. So he gets up on this thing. And you've got the Roman guards that have him kind of in chains. He's got his arms behind his back probably. He's got this crowd of very angry, angry, angry people that want him dead. All right? So he's either going to jail or he's going to die. Those are the choices that he's sitting with. And he stands up and he tells his story. He talks about how, hey, listen, I was a Pharisee. I walked these roads. I arrested Christians. I had a letter from the chief priest. He goes through the whole thing. God showed up in the middle of my life in a, in a big bright light, knocked me to the ground, right, and said, you know, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And he went through the whole thing about scales fell from his eyes. He tells the whole story. Gets to the very end of that story, and he kind of gives the, the Jewish hearers a little bar, basically saying, and, and you can't understand this truth right? Well, it says the people freaked out. They start ripping their clothes and cloaks. They start throwing dirt in the air. I mean, it is chaos. And they try and seize him again. And the the military guys take Paul and they drag him away. And they're like, what are you doing? He was like, I was telling the story. I was telling the truth. And and they take him to the the barracks and and, and they go to to beat him. And uh, they're they're about to beat him. And and, and the, the Roman kind of leader of this little army group steps in. He goes, wait, let's take him back to his leaders and see if they'll put him on a real trial. So they call the Sanhedrin, which is like the big Jewish ruling council together, and they say, look, this guy's a Jewish person. We arrested him. Don't let him just be killed. Put him on trial. Well, they put him before the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin people, after a while, they start debating, and they freak out again, and they start getting all angry, and they try and kill him, and the army has to come back in and take him out again, save his life for the second time. And finally, they decide they're just going to have him beaten because Paul is actually causing all kinds of problems. So the, the head of this little Roman guard says, beat him. And right when that first Roman guard goes to pull back his hand, that whip, Paul says, oh, by the way, I'm a uh, Roman citizen, and I'd like to talk to Caesar. Now, apparently, you can do that, which is kind of cool. I mean, the Romans have rights, I guess, and so they could not touch him. They literally had to hear his kind of reply or request to either go before Caesar or to go before one of the higher-ups, and they couldn't beat him because Roman citizens had rights. And Paul was both a Jewish person, but he was born as a Roman citizen. So he says... I'm a Roman citizen, I'd like to talk to Caesar. And they're like, oh, great, he wants to talk to Caesar. Reminds me of that scene from Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, where it's like, uh, parlay. And he's like, oh, you can't hurt him if you've ever seen that movie. But anyway, <laughs> if you haven't, you know, it's your loss. So, so anyway, he says, he, says, he says, you can't. And so they say, fine. So they, that night, that same night, right, Paul's laying in bed or on the floor, wherever you lay when you're in, in jail with the Romans. And, um, and the Lord appears to Paul. And he says, listen, Paul, take courage, because just as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, you're going to testify about me in Rome, all right? 
Now, you've got to understand the implications of this call. It's 23 chapter, uh, 23 chapter 11, and it is uh, chapter 23, verse 11. It's really powerful because what, what, what the Lord is basically saying is that, look, you are going to go and testify about Jesus in Rome. Now, this call is huge because the Roman Empire was massive, and they were powerful. And most people outside of Christians believed that Caesar, including Caesar himself, believed that he was a god. You didn't just walk up to Caesar and decide you're going to plead your case. Hey, look, I didn't do anything wrong. I mean, Caesar was a big deal, and you didn't just get to go and talk to him. And so going to preach the gospel or testify about Jesus in Rome was huge. I mean, it was a huge call, and that's it. There were no directions, no, no kind of, you're going to need to do this, you're going to need to do that, you're going to need to go here, you're going to need to go there, talk to this person, just listen, take courage, you're going to testify about me in Rome. So from that point on, here's what happens. And then I'm going to sum up four chapters really, really quickly. Paul stays arrested for three years. He goes back and forth between different prisons in the countryside. Um, basically, every time he's taken to one, his, uh, these little Jewish people that had, had wanted him killed planted or kind of plotted ways to attack him and kill him. And three times he avoided death as he was being transported from prison to prison to prison. He stood three different trials over three years. Finally, after three years, he was stuck on a ship with other prisoners and let set sail for Rome. Midway through that, they hit a raging storm in the Adriatic Sea, and the boat just shatters and breaks up. And Paul is left swimming to an island, all, all with these prisoners, through this crazy storm, gets to this island where they find out it's winter, and they can't get a boat off the island. Meanwhile, he gets bitten by a poisonous snake and is nearly killed, right? Finally gets back on a boat with all these other prisoners, taken to Rome. When he gets off the boat in Rome, they tell him this. They say, your appointment to see Caesar is in two years, and you're still under arrest, and you get to pay for your own house. So congratulations. So Paul, from the moment he was called, right, from the Lord to go and testify in Rome, stays in jail for basically five years, is nearly killed three or four different times, is shipwrecked, stands three different trials, bitten by a poisonous stake, all because God said, you're going to testify about me in Rome. What we're going to pick up today is Paul landing in Rome, right, getting off this boat, and what happens to close out the book of Acts. Because what I want you to understand is this call that Paul has, you will testify about me in Rome. I want you to understand that it's a call that we miss in Scripture, that it's about trust and about surrender and about finding joy in the middle of our lives. So let's take a look at this together. I'm going to read the last 13 verses just because I want you to hear them, but I want to pay attention to the ones at the end. Three days later, verse 17, three days later, right, this is right after Paul had landed in Rome, he called together the leaders of the Jews, and when they had assembled, Paul said to them, my brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted, me, wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death, but when the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any charge to bring against my own people. For this reason, I've asked to see you and talk with you, because it, it is the hope of Israel, because it is of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. And they replied, we have not received letters from Judea concerning you, and none of the brothers who have come, there, come from there have reported or said anything about you, but we want to hear what your views are, for we know that the people everywhere are talking against this sect or this group of Christians. So they arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in in large numbers in the, uh, at the place where he was staying. And from morning till evening, he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and the prophets. And some were convinced at what he said and others did not believe. They disagreed amongst themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. He said, the Holy Spirit spoke truth to your forefathers 
when he said to the Isaiah the prophet, go to these people and say, you'll be ever hearing but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Therefore I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. Listen to this last verse, last two verses. For two years Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him boldly and without hindrance. He preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. And the book of Acts ends. Now, I find this call fascinating because we look at calls of of people's lives in scriptures, and they all have kind of pretty little tidy ends that we can wrap bows around, and they make sense, and God does this amazing thing. But this call is really interesting to me because in the middle of Paul's life, in the middle of a time where he was nearly killed twice in the same day, right, in jail in a Roman army barrack, the Lord shows up in the middle of the night, and what does he say to Paul? He says, take courage because just as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, you're going to testify about me in Jerusalem. Rome. That's the call. That's it. No big picture, no how-to. This is what you're going to do. And then for the next basically three years till he gets there and five years till we know he gets to meet with Caesar, if he even does, we don't even see it recorded. Paul follows that one call, mostly out of his own control. He's in prison. He's a prisoner. He's a captive. But for five years, that becomes the call on Paul's life. And what I find really fascinating about living as people who are sent and living as followers of Christ, is that when it comes to being people that hear God's call in our lives and even our call in our church, there's a few things that we really have to come face to face with and we have to deal with. And the the first one is the idea of surrender. Because really being a follower of Christ is about surrendering our lives. Now notice I'm not saying it's about committing our lives. A lot of us use language like commitment. Man, I will commit my life to you, Lord. The truth is, is that you can never commit your life to Christ. Your commitment will never be good enough. Paul's commitment was never going to be good enough. Think about the commitments you've made, how many promises you've broken over the course of your life. Your commitments are as lame as mine. We just can't do it. So to sit there and say, God, I commit to you. All right, what do I really commit? I mean, I commit until it gets difficult or until I don't like it. And then I'm kind of doing something else. But when we use the words like surrender, it basically says, God, I take my agenda, my way of life, my thinking, my plan, and I lay it down for yours. Because I know, God, that your agenda and your plan is better and it's right. And I think a lot of us live in great tension in our relationship with Christ because we want to battle for control, right? And control is an illusion. It doesn't really exist. But we want to battle for it anyway because we want to feel at least like we have something in our lives under control. And so we're at tension always with the gospel because we want control of our lives. And the very gospel calls us to lay it down. That will forever be the great tension we live with, which is the gospel calls us to lay it down, to surrender our lives, and we fight God for it all the time. Being a follower of Christ is about surrendering our lives. I mean, think about this picture for a moment. It doesn't end the way we want it to end. It doesn't, at least the way I want it to end. How I want it to end is God says, Paul, I'm going to take you to Rome, and you are going to testify against me. Paul goes to Rome the next day, right, on a chartered flight or on a boat, and he gets there, and he shows up, and he says, I'm going to talk to Caesar. Caesar says, I'll hear your story. Paul tells Caesar about Jesus. Caesar becomes a believer, and all of human history changes. That's the story I want to be able to point to. But you know what? None of that happens. What happens is, is for three years, Paul stays arrested, nearly gets killed several more times, stands trial, gets on a shipwreck, boats fall apart, swims in the ocean, stuck on winter, bit by a snake, all to find out to pay for his own prison. And he never, as far as we know, gets to tell a soul that's important about Jesus. At least in our minds, that's what's playing out. But God's plan and God's agenda is so much different than ours and is so much better. Because if you look at this, 
It's really remarkable. For two years, Paul sat there, and everyone that came by, he told about Jesus. Welcomed them, told them about Christ. From the front porch of his rented jailhouse. Couldn't go anywhere, but you're walking by, he could tell you about Jesus. Surrendering our lives will forever be the call that we have as followers of Christ, even as a church. I mean, we could plan this out, and, you know, I had a guy send me a, when we first started planning, he sent me a list. They said, if you're not at this number by this day and this amount of giving by these days, then, then 92% show failure rate on this and all these things. And I looked at that, and I thought, well, that's great. I mean, because we hadn't hit any of those things, right? And I said, well, that's awesome. But at the same time, I was thinking, God, when we begin to clearly cart, ch- kind of plan our path, and we begin to say, God, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and anything other than that is, is classified in my mind as failure. Man, we're missing the entire point of what it means to surrender our lives to Christ. I mean, we could look at this story and say failure. I mean, Paul never really got to testify in Rome, did he? These are just people that are walking by. In our minds, we could look at that. I mean, think about your own life, right? If God tells you to go and do something that takes five years, you think God left a long time ago. God tells you to do something, your car breaks down, you got to walk to work. I mean, that, something's wrong with your life. We don't consider that part of God's plan. But God's plan, shipwrecking all these things, that is evidence that God's agenda is different than our agenda. Part of our lives as followers of Christ is, is living in the idea of surrender, especially as a church. God, I, I, I give it to you. We can't control this. We can't do it. With your own life and your own home, God is yours. I surrender. I'm done. I can't keep making my own path. I can't keep creating my own space. I know you're calling me to lay my life down. The second thing we really come up with is this idea of trust. I mean, and I kind of mentioned it a second ago, but really, I mean, would you really live in trust if this was your picture? God says, hey, look, I want you to do this with your life. And everywhere you turn seemed to be a roadblock, at least from a visual standpoint. I mean, when Paul said, when God says to Paul, you're going to testify in Rome, and you can't get yourself out of jail after three years, and every time you go anywhere, you're nearly killed, and you've gotten boats that break down, and you finally get to where you think you're going to be, only to be told that it'll be at least two years before your voice is even heard, and you're still going to be a prisoner, and you're going to have to pay out of your own pocket. Every single one of us in this room would feel like God has abandoned us. I mean, that's just our nature. Because I hear it and I talk with you all all the time, and I even feel it in my own life. But our timing is not God's timing, and we have to live in trust. Because following Christ lives in the unknown. It deals and lives in the unknown. The gospel is messy, and it's not easy, and you can't create a clear picture of it all the time. Because just when we think we get a handle on it, man, the the road goes white, or the boat breaks down, or you're told it's going to be two more years. And the question is, do you really trust the God that called you is the God that will complete his call? I bet there were moments in Paul's life, and I don't know this for sure, I'm guessing, that there were moments where Paul was sitting in that jail going, I mean, really? All my life, Lord, as things happen, you have, made, you have changed them. I mean, Paul, is, he, has, he has sung songs before and had chains break off his arms. He and Silas in prison. I mean, God, earthquakes have happened, open doors, and nothing seems to be working right now. Why, after three years, am I still in prison? I bet there were moments where he just said, God, what are you doing? Or at least that's how I would feel. And a lot of us really deal with trust issues with the Lord. When it doesn't happen on our timetable, we have trust issues with God. And I love this picture because as I was going through this, I started thinking, man, I would have given up on the Lord a long time ago. I would have been so angry. I would have stuffed that box back there with all my prayer concerns. Got my boat broke down. I shattered. I bit by a snake. Everything in my life is going wrong. But all of those things were part of God's plan and God's call. And Paul had to live in the middle of them faithfully. 
life is not easy. My dad always, whenever something would go wrong, my dad would always say, hey, Trevor, you know what? Life isn't easy. And I was like, really? I know that. I mean, I know life's not easy. That's a terrible thing to tell somebody. I mean, I know life's not easy. But what he was really trying to tell me was, you know, just because things go wrong doesn't necessarily go hard, doesn't necessarily mean they're wrong. His whole point was, life will throw these things at us, and it's not necessarily a pointing to the fact that all is disaster. So we trust God in the middle of life, and we trust his call, and we walk. And the last thing I want you to see is this. In his own rented house, Paul welcomed all who came by, and he boldly told them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, it doesn't explicitly say this, but you get the picture through the idea of welcome that you get the sense that Paul had become content with almost like a little joyful contentment. Maybe he wasn't happy about a circumstance. Maybe he wasn't high-fiving everybody all excited. But he was joyfully content, and he welcomed people into his home, and he told them about Jesus. Paul found a moment in the middle of his life, maybe in the middle of a life that you and I wouldn't like to have, in jail, waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting, to say, God, I'm going to welcome the people here. I'm going to find contentment where I am, and I'm going to tell people about Jesus. So many believers that I have conversations with and I come in contact with are so discontented in their own life. They are so frustrated about where they're not. They're so frustrated about what they're not making, what they're not earning, what job they don't have, where life has them, what car's broken down, how struggle, 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 struggle. It's discontent, discontent, discontent. And I look at this passage and I think to myself, at some point in time, we have to become okay with where we are and find opportunities to tell the world about Christ in that circumstance. It doesn't mean we have to love it and we have to be excited about it, but what it means, I have to say, God, you can use me here. Because if Paul would have folded his arms and says, I'm going to sit back here and wait to talk to Caesar, because that is my agenda for what success looks like, he would have missed the opportunity to preach and testify, which is what he did, about Jesus in Rome. And what if that was God's call? What if God's call when he was to testify about Jesus in Rome was to sit in a rented jailhouse and just tell people that walked by about Jesus? Sounds kind of small for a guy like Paul, but I love it because that's how God works. So in the job that you hate, right, how can God use you? In the family that you're stuck with, how can God use you? Because God's timing is always ridiculous, it's never easy, and it's always messy. So with whatever's going on in your life, surrender, trust, and joy. Man, God, I know it doesn't have to be happy, and I don't have to be excited about it, and I know I'm struggling, but there's a moment in here somewhere where I can find someone walking by, and I can tell them about what you've done in my life. And just maybe all the things that you're dealing with and struggling at the different times, well, they're part of God's agenda to get you to trust Him and surrender your life to Him so that you can find purpose and joy where you are. Our call as a church as we get ready to close out in worship and the band comes back out to lead us in, in worship as we close is really this. We're done setting our own agendas. We're not going to set our own markers. We're not going to do any of those things. We're just simply going to say, God, we're, we're adaptable and flexible to where you lead us. We want to be a people that surrender and a people that trust and find joy where we are. We want to stand on our corner. We want to walk up and down the streets. We want to go all over the city and the world. We want to tell people about Jesus. And when difficulty happens, and it will happen, when we have moments that we don't know what to deal with, we are going to trust and surrender our lives to you because we believe that you called us to this, and we believe that you're faithful. Let's pray.